This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first-time listener here at WAGP.net or at 88.7 FM, and we're glad that you are here. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular doctrinal issue, a passage, a personal issue in your life or ministry or church that you would like help on, and if we can help by God's grace, we will. There's several ways you can contact us. Again, the South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or you can reach us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you call, we do give priority to live callers. Um, Some people don't want to go on the air live. They simply want to dictate their question. And uh, we're happy to receive it, however. Anyway, with that said, Walter, it's good to have you here at the board today. Let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor Carl, good morning. Our first question comes in as anonymous. They write, I am concerned about the direction of the cruise, uh, cruise campus ministry. My son, is, my son is attending the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and is involved with crew. I am not surprised by some of the woke attitudes of the faculty at UNC, but I have been concerned that some of this ideology is permeating to the uh, crew ministry, as evidenced by some of the attitudes expressed by my son. Please let me know your thoughts as I respect your opinion and remember that you used to be affiliated with Campus Crusade for Christ. Well, yes, and of course it's not called Campus Crusade for Christ. As you acknowledge, it's called Crew. And yes, I'm very disappointed at the direction that this ministry has gone The challenge with parachurch ministries is that typically, unless they're under the authority of a local church, they don't last. Though Crew was started in 1951 by Dr. Bill Bride, very, very godly man, and has had a phenomenal history. And let me just say, there is still thousands of good people who are on staff with Crew. But the generation that came through Dr. Bride's error basically has retired or in the process of retiring or died. And so the really formulation of the organization is dramatically changing. I'll give you an example. Um, Someone at the University of Kentucky campus ministry uh, was committed to God's standard. A woman should not teach or exercise authority over the man. Had a phenomenal ministry there at that school in Lexington. But in the process, uh, one of the women wanted to teach And he said, look, um, I'll let you teach women. That's certainly a critical, vital role that you can do better than I can. But in terms of a mixed audience, God's word is clear. She didn't like that. She went over his head, and they came back to him and said, you either do this or you are fired. And so he stepped out and left the ministry with crew. 
Uh, those are the kinds of things. Um, uh, Rick Forstner, who's our director of communications here at Community Bible Church, who's run this radio station for decades, uh, he, of course, uh, brought to my attention again recently uh, the Family Life Ministry of Crew. Do I like Family Life? I have loved it. Uh, it initially started with um, marriage conferences for who? For Campus Crusade for Christ staff members. Dennis Rainey began it back in the 1970s. A lot of us would go to these various campus assignments. I was at UNC Chapel Hill for a few years and then opened the ministry at Duke, and I was there for five years. And, and so, you know, we'd meet people. Uh, very often fellow staff members and or people in the area in which we lived. And so, you know, to get pastoral counseling uh, a thousand miles away or however far you were from home was sometimes difficult. And they wanted to assure that they had good, solid biblical counseling for these young men and women who were getting married. And so Family Life Ministry started. And I went to one of the very first conferences they ever had. Audrey and I were engaged. There was about 300 people there. And we said, man, we've got a lot of friends who could really benefit uh, we went back five years later. We brought 10 couples with us to an auditorium of 3,000, and they have helped thousands and thousands of people. Well, Family Life Ministry, now that Dennis Rainey has stepped out, he's retired, and he's a few years older than I, um, but nonetheless, uh, sadly, it's taking a new direction. So Sam Alberry, who you may have heard here at 88.7, he is a former Episcopal priest, now lives in the USA, and has a huge impact in evangelical platforms. And his basic premise is that same-sex attraction is okay as long as you don't act on it. And by that, he is going in a very definitive way. But you can hold hands if you want to embrace with your roommate or kiss. You know, this is like evil. This is evil. And why any evangelical would allow him on their platform— Look, if someone is um, dealing with heterosexual lust, they can't say, well, you know, I've got heterosexual lust in my heart as long as I don't act on it. No, it needs to be repented of. And same-sex attraction needs God's sanctifying work of the Spirit. And by the way, why would anyone ever want to identify themselves with a sin? What are you? I'm a, I'm a murderer Christian. I'm a, I'm a thieving Christian. I'm a same-sex-attracted Christian. This is an oxymoron, and it's dishonoring to the cause of Christ. And so you will no longer hear family life on this station. We've put Mike Favares in, in his place, a solid uh, Bible teacher from the West Coast. And uh, so he is uh, now taking their spot. So Crew is in deep trouble, deep trouble. Some of their campus ministries are great, really solid, good people, because they've been there, most of them, a long time. But the newer generation that is coming, we just dropped a crew couple. Our church supports 350-plus missionaries around the world, and we had some crew staff, and uh, we had to do some analysis after the 2019 staff training. You could go uh, online, and uh, there's a young man who uh, does a thing where he does, I forgot, something conversations, and... um, He uh, put together this montage of all of the major speakers in the 2019 uh, crew annual staff meeting, and it was just sad. It was very, very sad, the speakers that they had. And they were moving in a direction of, you know, social gospel uh, kinds of issues rather than preaching the gospel of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. 
uh, just just a lot of wrong focuses and emphasis. And in fact, it was a short time thereafter, the president of Campus Crusade for Christ, who um, took Dr. Bright's place, Steve Douglas, his office contacted me and said, we want to come to Community Bible Church on a Sunday morning and present to you the um, uh, Crystal Award. I said, what's the Crystal Award? Well, it's because your church has given over a million dollars to um, missionaries through Campus Crusade for Christ um, since you've been the pastor there, and that happens very, very rarely. I said, well, I would love to take it on behalf of the people of Community Bible Church, but if you're asking for Steve Douglas to come to my church and use me as some fundraising tool when you guys have major problems that need to be addressed— and so we actually surveyed all of our crew missionaries, and we let four of them go because they were getting, quote-unquote, woke. And this is not good. I'm not making a judgment statement, but look, if you don't have a guy who's in charge of his own home, for instance, he's got family issues, maybe transgender children, lesbian children, homosexual children, um, embracing people like N.T. Wright, who is N.T. Wrong. Uh, these, are, these are bad things. But, of course, it made it all the way to the president's office, and they supposedly came out and said, we've repented. We're going back to our original objectives. Well, they obviously are not. That's a lot of chatter. So I would, like, caution anyone, my own students, when they leave Community Bible Church Christian Academy for home education, they go off to the university. I said, you got to be very careful now with these campus ministries. Ideally, remember, God's heartbeat is the local church. I'm not critical of Campus Crusade. I became a Christian through their ministry, and I served with them for 12 and a half years. With that said, they have taken a new direction. So you should be deeply concerned about your son. And um, I don't, uh, University of North Carolina, um, you know, there's some <clears throat> good local churches in that area. He should, you know, basically link himself to that and give his focus there because his mind sounds like he's being polluted in an unhealthy way. And unless, you know, here's the challenge is people don't come from solid Bible-believing churches now. And we are seeing the product of 20-minute seeker-sensitive sermons where people are not well-schooled in doctrine. And because of that, when they go off to college, uh, they don't always have the discernment to know what sound doctrine is and what they should be looking for. So I will later today pray for your son, that God will somehow show him that he's in the wrong place. Good question. Let's go to the next. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line. Our next question comes from a listener who is familiar with praying to God, our Heavenly Father, but has Pastor Carl ever heard of praying to our Heavenly Mother, and is this okay? No, it's not okay, and yes, I've heard of it. Who does it? Liberals, um, typically in the United Methodist Church, uh, certain branches of the Lutheran Church, all but one has gone liberal, Um, uh, PCUSA churches. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll do this. Some of the mainline Protestant denominations and now some of the so-called woke evangelical churches, Heavenly Mother, listen, when you pray, Jesus said, Our Father. And so um, this is a distortion of who God is. And by the way, when God the Son left heaven, he came as a man and for a reason. 
And so, yes, it's a distortion of truth. And these people who are doing it just, excuse me, just pull back the veneer and you soon discover they're pro-LGBTQIA. They are into a social gospel. They're not preaching the plan of salvation. They have a low view of Jesus. They have a low view of scripture. They often deny just major central orthodox teachings. You should run a thousand miles in the opposite direction. This is an unbeliever who's doing this. This is an unbeliever who maybe is snuck into the church. They are a wolves in sheep's clothing, to use Jesus' metaphor. They're fakes. They're phonies. You should run in the opposite direction. It's, it's wrong. Uh, if you want to understand what God says about prayer, you, uh, we have a class at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class. It's a 45-week course, and it's designed to ground people in the basics. We have 23 of those weeks now online at searchthescriptures.org, not under the title of the Discovery Class, but Basic Discipleship. And the um, next to the last one that I put up there on video that you can watch or you can listen to the audio, if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, go to the App Store. And I, by God's grace, created a 32-page handout on what the Bible says about prayer. And I think that would be a huge help to you. All right, let's go to the next person. All right, Pastor Carl, I believe we have a live caller on line one. Good morning, caller. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, thank you. Dr. Broge, you have a question. Uh, we have a local pastor that's, um, that believes that, uh, that God is done with Israel, that uh, the body of Christ is, uh, is uh, replaced Israel, and... My question is, uh, he uses Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 to show that um, that God has done with Israel. He uses various Old Testaments, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Um, I guess the best way to ask the question is, uh, if you could define the New Covenant as far as it's concerning the body of Christ and then versus the um, the nation of Israel when they're saved during the tribulation? Yeah, no, these are great, great questions. So um, he has embraced what's known as replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, Augustine, uh, largely because of the gentleman who discipled him, because to speak of a reigning, returning king or rule over the earth could cost you your life with the Caesars. And so if you go back... You soon discover that replacement theology had its uh, its early seeds. Augustine really planted those seeds, and of course, eventually around 575 A.D., when the Roman Catholic Church starts, not with Peter, of course, uh, they adopted this view. They said that the Roman Catholic Church is now the chosen organism that God is using to propagate his message, and God is done with the Jewish people. And sadly, um, you know, as you review some of the popes, especially during uh, 1,000, 1,200, 1,300, 1,400, 1,500, they said some of the most heinous things you could ever imagine uh, concerning the Jewish people. And that's sad. And so think your way through this. Some of the reformers come out of Protestant Reformation, the the reformers come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they put a different spin on it. They said, well, 
the Roman church is not the new Israel, but the body of Christ is, born-again Christians, but nonetheless they taught that Israel had been replaced. And so when you read some of Calvin's writings, I mean, they're very disheartening. Um, some of the things he said about Jewish people that he's going to, I'm sure he dealt with when, when he died. I'm not saying he's an unbeliever, but he said some really evil things about the Jewish people, as did Martin Luther. And this is pretty sad, some of the things that they said. And again, they're being influenced by their roots. And some of their other theologies express the same thing. Calvin in his ecclesiology, uh, Lutheran the same. For instance, they continued with infant baptism, which is totally unfounded in Scripture. The Bible says, believe and then be baptized. They reversed it like the Roman church, but they put a different spin on it instead of saying that it's um, the sacrament that washes away sin and instills salvation to your soul. That's right out of the Baltimore Catechism that I had to memorize. They said, no, it was a form of prevenient grace. So they used the term sacrament. And typically, almost always, when the term sacrament is used, it is used to infer some special infusion of grace, whether it's Lutheranism, the 39 Articles of Faith, and the Episcopal Church, and so on. It's not. It's symbolic. It doesn't infuse grace into the soul. Um, but nonetheless, they taught that. And so they had this distorted view on the nation of Israel, which, again, it's grievous to me to uh, read about and to hear about and some of the conclusions they came to. But the Apostle Paul didn't believe that. And so, for instance, take Calvin, because he believed that God was done with the people of Israel he um, said in his mind that um, that what's in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is God choosing uh, not Israel, but God choosing individuals. I will deal with this very subject before too long as I come to another book of the Bible that I'll be teaching through verse by verse by verse. But that's not the focus of 9, 10, and 11. The focus is the people of Israel. In fact, when you come to the 10th chapter, if God was done with Israel, then why does Paul say, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation? For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so here's Paul, he's brokenhearted over the people of Israel, and yet, um, and, and, and so he hasn't given up on Israel. In fact, he, he argues that, he says in chapter 9, for I, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If I could die and go to hell so that they could go to heaven, that's how deeply committed he was. In fact, he then says in chapter 11, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? Remember, he elected them, that's chapter 9. They rejected him, that's chapter 10, that they spurned God's Messiah for the same reason most Gentiles do today. They think they're good enough. I say then, chapter 11, speaking of their future restoration, God has not rejected his people, has he? Meganoida, may it never be, for I too am an Israelite. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God knew in advance what their response would be. If God didn't know that, God would not be God. Does that mean he abandoned them? No. He affirmed in the Old Testament he loved them with an everlasting love. So again, chapters like Hebrews 7 through 10, where it mentions the new covenant, 
And again, he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish Christians who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And of course, the problem that he's dealing with in the book of Hebrews was that they were, in order to avoid persecution, going back and performing some of the shadows whose substance was Christ. So if you made yourself look more Jewish and you continued in the temple and the temple sacrificial system, then they wouldn't persecute you and they wouldn't boycott your business and reject you because you still had enough Jewish expression in you. And his warning to them, he warns them throughout the book, is you don't do that because you're discrediting the finished work of Jesus. And of course, the new covenant is being experienced today in the church. And so beginning on the day of Pentecost, next Sunday is um, Pentecostal Sunday, we might say. It's Shavuot. It's the 50th day after the resurrection of Christ. So he rises from the dead, walks on the earth for 40 days, ascends into heaven. Ten days later, it will be next Sunday, the Spirit of God is sent. And I'll do a special message, God willing, this Sunday on this very subject. And so we are recipients right now, not exclusively Gentiles, because God has always had his remnant, as he argues in the 11th chapter, and he hasn't forsaken Israel. A day is coming when he's going to restore Israel. Right now, though, the church is largely Gentile. And anyone, Jew or Gentile today, who embraces Jesus as Lord, experiences the benefits of the new covenant. Now, sometimes they'll quote, not the Colossians verse that you mentioned, but typically the one they use is Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this verse is used to teach everything from women pastors to um, homosexuality as being a legitimate alternative lifestyle to uh, basically replacement theology. So when he says there's neither Jew or Greek, it doesn't mean that a person is Jew who is a Jew in terms of that he's a descendant of Abraham, that he's no longer Jewish any more than a person who's Greek or a Gentile is no longer a Gentile, any more than a man is still a man and a woman is a woman. Though people want to deny that basic truth today through the heresy and blasphemy of transgenderism. So he's not denying that. His point in Galatians 3 is that we're equal in Christ, that a man can have the same status as a woman, and a woman is a man, and a Gentile is a Jew, and a Jew is a Gentile, and someone who's free or someone who's enslaved under Roman law, that we experience the same benefits and blessings as members of the new covenant. And so there is coming a day, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, In the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 30, then in chapter 31, the prophet Ezekiel, they look down the carters of time to this future day when Israel is going to believe. And so that's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel that you might want to listen to. I have four messages on Daniel 9, and he gives 490 years of Israel's history. In the last seven years, the 70th week um, deals with the whole subject of what we call in the New Testament the coming tribulation. It's all prophesied in the Old Testament. And so Jesus just elucidates it for us in places like the Olivet Discourse. 
But who is going to be the preachers of the gospel in that seven-year period? The Jewish people. And they're going to win Jews, and they're going to win Gentiles like we've never seen before, such that Jesus can say this gospel, the kingdom will go out to the whole world, and then the end shall come. But remember, when someone starts with the premise, the church is the new Israel, they're going to read Scripture through that colored lens. And that's, uh, that's dangerous to do. It's not something you want to do. It's something Luther did. It's something Calvin did. They were wrong. I'm sure they had to uh, <laughs> address this with the Lord when they met him in heaven. But they were just downright wrong. And it's wrong to say that the church has replaced Israel. And so what has replacement theology done? It's put the body of Christ to sleep. Right before our eyes, we are seeing God fulfill biblical prophecy in our day, and most Christians are asleep because they do not see that the key element that God is going to use just as he used Israel to bring about the first coming, the key element he's going to use to bring about the second coming will be Israel. And God is doing a great work today in Israel because he's setting the stage for the return of his son. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl today, our next question comes from a listener who appreciates Dr. Brogy's ministry and has learned a lot. This caller asks, should Christians be concerned about artificial intelligence? And is this something Christians should accept or not? Well, you know, I would just say this. Uh, Man always wants to make himself out to be like a god. There's the problem at the Tower of Babel. There's the first temptation. Eat of the fruit, you can become like God. And in some respects, artificial intelligence mimics that. You know, you read things, as I do, where it can all lead, where it can all go. Is it going to end there where computers and robots are going to take over humanity? Obviously not. How do I know? The same reason I don't know that the world's going to end in nuclear destruction. Why? Because the Bible gives us the end planned and how God is going to end human history. Is God going to allow the human race, which is, you know, people are all uptight about it, to be obliterated through artificial intelligence? No. Uh, Should people be concerned about aspects of artificial intelligence? Yes, in the same way they should be concerned about people who have nuclear weapons because um, God uses people who will do what is right in order to prevent evil. But I know the end game in whether God chooses himself to intervene via the rapture like he did at the Tower of Babel. He said, enough is enough. This is the end of it. And God goes down and He takes his people who should have spread across the world and in disobedience under one language where evil could then be unified and have an expression like never before. He confuses them, and he mixes up their languages. So they're forced to separate, and they end up moving and creating their own language groups, and that's how the races develop because when people marry long enough within a particular language group, they begin to develop certain uh, facial expressions. So the various, um, um, the way humans look, we're all from Adam. Again, evolution wants to deny that, and they want to argue that some groups of people, like Hitler said, you know, Jews and black people and others weren't as highly evolved as the white Aryan race. You know, he's just a wicked man, and he's in hell now paying the penalty for the false doctrine he taught. But where did he get some of that? 
He got some of that from evolution. In fact, he used and quoted Martin Luther as justification for destroying the Jewish people. He quoted right out of Luther's own works because of some of the evil things that Luther said about the Jewish people. So, you know, where is it all going to go? I know where it's all going. It's going to Jesus. He's coming back. At some point, he's going to intervene. And so that's not to say that we shouldn't speak what is true and and certainly you have concerns and I have concerns as well. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next question comes from Terry out of Irwin, Tennessee. He writes, I've been listening to your exposition of Romans and have a couple of questions concerning the Calvinistic views and my thoughts on countering them. First, I am a father and have two children. I love them very much and want them to love me too. It seems based on Calvinism, they would have to love me regardless because they would have to love me. I would rather them love me because they wanted to, not because they have to love me. I think our Heavenly Father would want us to love Him because we want to, not because we have to. And second, if Calvinism is true, then it would seem that God planned for Adam and Eve to fall and not that when Eve was deceived and ate the fruit, it was not of her own free will, but that God ordained that from the beginning. Then we, then we would actually be nothing more than robots living out our pre-programmed lives. Just a couple of thoughts. Actually, I cover this very issue in a little booklet that I've written. I call it an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. Would you like to know God as your friend? It's now in 12 languages, and um, people use it to share the gospel. But in the opening thing, in, in an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, 40 years ago, we used to distinguish between an Acts 2 presentation and an Acts 17 presentation. In Acts 2, when Peter stands up on Pentecost, there's an assumption to the audience to whom he is speaking, Jewish people, that they have a certain knowledge of the Scriptures. And so he presents the gospel accordingly. There was a time when you could share five steps to peace with God or the four spiritual laws, and the average American, oh, they knew John 3.16, they'd at least heard it, or... You know, they had a certain basic theology that somehow they were able to learn either in school or through friends or their church or whatever. That's gone. That's totally gone. And so now more like Paul on Mars Hill, he assumes nothing. And so that's the kind of presentation I do. So I start in Genesis, and I speak to the fact that we're made in the Amago Dei, the image of God, the Latin Amago Dei. And so... Um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, one aspect of being made in the image of God is you're a free moral agent. God didn't make us like robots, where he pre-programmed us, where all we could do was obey. Uh, That was not God's heart in creating man. That would not be love. That would be a mechanical response. That would be artificial intelligence. And so, no, God gave man a choice, and so to have free will, you had to have a choice. And so you reference here Genesis 2, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall certainly die. So man is a free moral agent. What does that mean in reference to the doctrine of election? Well, I, I opened my Greek New Testament here, and I turned to Ephesians, and it says this, in Christo, in Christ, kathos eklexato humos. Just as he chose us. This word, uh, alexato, is the word that we get our word election from. So God elected us in Christ. So, first of all, let me just say 
the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's not an issue of does God elect us, it's an issue of how does God elect us. And so God elects us, I believe, clearly from Scripture on the basis of his foreknowledge. To those who reside as aliens, I'm reading from 1 Peter 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God chose us, he elected us, how? According to his foreknowledge. And this is the verbal form, and so the verb foreknow is used um, here in four other places in the New Testament, and the noun is used uh, a few times as well. And so it speaks of something that God knew in advance. And so, for instance, even if I'm going to turn over a few pages here to Second Peter, and in Second Peter, he's talking about, um, let me just pick it up in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. That gives us some comfort. Peter even found Paul sometimes difficult. You have to pour over it. Which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures. By the way, Peter uh, equated Paul's writings with the rest of scripture. He believed he run under the inspiration of the Spirit to their own destruction. Then he says, here it is, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. There it is, prognosco, beforehand knowledge. So knowing I've told you this in advance, be on your guard. And so understand when the Bible speaks of the foreknowledge of God, it is speaking of the fact that God knows tr- things that are going to unfold in advance. If God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. Now, we can't take any credit for our salvation. The initiative begins with God. By nature, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. So you can't say as a braggadocious person, well, I started reading this guy on apologetics or this person, and I came to the conclusion uh, that this is true, and so I believed in Jesus. No, that's not how it happened. Now, God may have used that process, but it didn't begin with you. The fact that you even had an interest, God put that there. So don't take any credit for your salvation. It began with the living God. Paul in Acts 26 says, I've turned there, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me. Literally, the Greek says, they knew before knew me. They have known about me for a long time. It's the same verbal noun form, prognosco, prior knowledge. They knew about me for a long time. And, and if they are willing to testify that, uh, um, are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So here he is giving his defense and is reminding him that these Jews who knew about his life from a youth up, Paul became a leader, a member of the Sanhedrin. He led in the execution of Stephen. Uh, these people knew all about me. They knew beforehand. And so this idea that prognosco means something other than prior or beforehand knowledge is just wrong. It just speaks of precognition, 
or foresight, something that God knew in advance. So it's on that basis that God can write your name before the foundations of the world in his book. If you want to read and do some study on this, I would recommend a couple of things. One, listen to my series on Romans, but hone in on Romans 9. Hone in on Romans chapter 9, because I go through the passages that people typically use to say that God chose you to go to heaven and this guy over here to go to hell. And I walk through that and I let Scripture interpret Scripture. Someone asked me, I think a few months ago here in the Bible line, is there a good book I could read? Dave Hunt, who's now in heaven, he wrote a book called What Love Is This? And he deals with these issues. And it's written on a popular level. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to understand it. But I think that book might be very useful to you as well. So I hope that helps. And yes, I I, I agree with you. And those are just a few comments that you asked me to give. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Pastor Carl, let's go to the back to the Bible line. I believe we have John Wade Weatherford. Good morning, John Wade. You're live with Pastor Carl. Thank you very much, Pastor Carl and Walter. I've been a member of uh, several churches throughout my working career, kind of moving around the state, and especially since the uh, the shooting in Charleston with Dylan Rue, several of the churches have had like a church safety team or church security team, which I, you know, very much support. But I have had conversations with people that, that um, don't really like that and, and have told me that I should have more faith in the Lord for protection. And I was just wondering your thoughts on it, Pastor Brokey, and like if there was any biblical support for having a, a team, you know, looking out uh, for maybe uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I'll get off the air and listen to your answer. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And there's been hundreds and hundreds of church shootings, many attempts. Uh, sadly, some that were fulfilled. You mentioned the uh, pastor in a uh, total of eight people who were executed there in Charleston. Uh, so, yes, it, it is a deterrent. And so does God set up deterrence to keep away evil? And the answer is yes. Classic text would be uh, Romans 13. He's reminding Christians that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I have a whole message on this, one on the right of government to exercise the sword, and it needs to be a legitimate exercise. In other words, God gives parameters. They're supposed to praise good and put down evil. Sadly, though they're not doing it with the sword yet in the United States, they are praising evil more and more and putting down uh, good, and that's sad. Um, Look at what happened just a few days ago in Canada. A young 16-year-old lad was out there trying to witness to transgender homosexual people, not physically violent, um, was passing out Bibles, asking people to consider the good news, and they started attacking him. And what did he do? He held his hands up in the air the whole time so that no one would think for a moment that he was going to respond violently. What did they do? They arrested him. And that's, that's sad, but that's, that's where this world is headed. And you have more and more people who love the darkness rather than the light. And God says, woe to you who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. 
What do you call light darkness and darkness light is Isaiah underscores. And that's where the world is moving. We're in the shadows of the tribulation period. There's a pregnancy. And after the church is removed, indeed, what will happen will the church will experience, I mean, the, the, the believers on the uh, earth and the world will experience, the church will be gone, the birth pangs of the tribulation, which will gradually go into full labor, uh, bringing about the return of Christ. So one, God gave government the right to defend himself. The God, for instance, in Exodus speaks of a man's um, right to defend himself. If someone breaks into your house at night and you don't know what their intentions are and you think you might kill them, uh, they, they're trying to kill you, you can take their life and there's no guiltiness. But if they break into your house in broad daylight and it's clear they have no intention to kill you and you kill them anyway, that happened in Texas, by the way, a few years back. A man shot his next door neighbor's crook who was trying to break into his house. He promised his next door neighbor, while you're away on vacation, I'll, I'll guard your house. And these two guys from, I think, a South American country they were illegals. They were climbing through the window. He said, look, don't, don't climb in. I'm going to shoot you. <clears throat> don't, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> don't, climb, don't climb in. I'm going to shoot you. Shot him anyway. He was exonerated. Well, he may have been exonerated under Texas law, but he wasn't exonerated under God's law. What he did was wrong. And he should not have taken that man's life because those people who were breaking into his next-door neighbor's life was no threat to him. Um, God makes it clear. Jesus told his disciples in the right context to take a sword. Why? Because there would be people who might try to hurt you. Now, Peter misapplied it, but nonetheless, it was still a truth. Take a sword. Not contradictory to other statements that he made. And so there is a right to defend yourself, and there's a right to curb evil. And a church in our day that doesn't have some kind of security, you know, Dennis Gaines, a man in our church, 15 years before the event ever happened in Charleston, started our security ministry. It was very low level at that point, but he did what he could, and, and he basically laid the foundation uh, for Nelson, who came in, and uh, he has, we have 19 armed men Approximately every Sunday, we have people watching 150-some cameras, uh, both outside and inside. Why? Because we want to protect our people. And these are people who have to go through some very, very careful training in order to carry a weapon. You cannot carry a weapon in a church, concealed carry, unless you have the permission of the church slash pastor. Those are the rules under South Carolina law. And so these guys are really good. They'll spot some people who bring in a concealed weapon, and they say, you know, would you mind putting your weapon back in your car? Uh, you're not allowed. Why? Because if there's a shooter, you know, a, a shooting in a church situation is different from someone breaking into your home at night. It's not the same. Uh, it's very different. There's masses of people. And so how do you take out someone who may need to be extinguished, as they often say, um, by, um, in a way that's safe and you won't hurt the congregants. A lot of training. That's how you do it. Walter, you're on the security team. Um, tell us a little bit about the training that men go through at Community Bible Church. Uh, the training here at Community Bible Church. So, uh, I think most importantly, it's a rigorous prog, um, you know, test. You have to t pass the background check. So it's very in depth. Right. Uh, it goes through sled here, uh, sled, 
Um, all of our volunteers here at the church go through SLED, I believe, if you that's right. any ministry. And that's kind of the first way for the church and the staff to do their due diligence. Uh, once you pass the background check, you have to be an active member, which I also think is very important, and right. participate in church. Yep. Um, so to ensure that you're just a Bible-believing Christian, mm-hmm. right? So uh, assuming that you make the team, you try out for six months to a year, fellowship with all the other gentlemen on the team, uh, and that's more so for the older, more mature Christians to just do due diligence. And, you know, it's, uh, as Nelson says all the time, being on the safety team is second. We want to ensure that you're a good man of God first. Right. And if the, if the first is true, the second will also follow suit. So, uh, what, like 60 hours of training? Is- oh, it's, it's, I think we're up to right now, Pastor Carl, I think it's up to 75. Nelson has us doing 75 yeah. hours of yep. training. Yeah. Yep. And so these guys meet occasionally and they have days and reenact particular potential yep. dangers that could happen in a church. How do you respond? They could yep. target practice and all these things. So, yes, and we, you know, if a church, uh, and, and I would say Nelson is committed if someone's listening and you, you may be listening in another state and you want help. I know there are outside organizations that will come into your church and they'll charge you an incredible amount of money. It's very, very expensive. Uh, but we're willing to help churches and they can come and participate uh, in some of the training processes in terms of starting a, a good, solid ministry to protect the people. You've got to do this in the day that we're living in. And people need to know their children are protected, that they're protected. And it becomes a deterrent to evil. It really does. It becomes a deterrent to evil. And when there's no deterrent, and this is what we're seeing happening in our nation, you know, people can go in and break into a store, and if their theft is under $1,000, it's only a misdemeanor, and they're out in a couple of hours. And literally, in some places, they've gone into stores with calculators, just in case they are caught. You know, I was talking to, my son is the president of HomeDepot.com, and we were having this discussion because I was in the Home Depot up in Charleston, and I was trying to get some uh, electrical wire. It was all in a cage. And I finally found the guy, and he said, yeah. He said, we have $4,000 a week on average of thievery just on my eye. I said, you're kidding me. He said, yeah, we just put these cages in last week. I said, why, why here and not over there? He said, because that electrical wire is so expensive, the copper in it and so forth. And he said, I said, well, how does this happen? He said, well, someone will go over to the next department. They'll get a trash barrel. They'll bring it here, and they'll fill the trash barrel up with wire. And we know what they're doing. They are stealing product. And our cameras are on them, but we're not allowed to touch them. Now, he said, I have a couple of guys who are very big and intimidating. And he said, they're only here two days a week, and that's a deterrent for some of them. But, you know, we watch them. We try to get a plate number, but we can't touch them. And I said, wow. I said, that's terrible. And Um, And, of course, I ended up having this conversation with my son, and he said, yeah, um, you know, a store needs to keep their theft uh, under $2 million a year or they close it. Can you believe this? This is America today. This is where we are headed in America today. It's a very, 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 very sad day. And, And sadly, a Home Depot employee tried to step in in San Francisco Uh, just last month, and that person was shot to death. So I say all that to say that you need deterrence, and you especially need them in a church because the light is blinding to people who are in the darkness, 
and they hate the light because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. And if a church today doesn't take some steps, they're not being very wise and good stewards over the lives of God's people. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Paul out of Savannah, Georgia. He would like to know if you have any information on Calvinism. Yeah, so this kind of piggybacks on the earlier question, and I would say, Paul, listen to Romans 9. There's a whole series of messages I did on that in my verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Romans. And so it would really be helpful to listen to 9, 10, and 11. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures. It's kind of a triangular shape looking uh, symbol for the Trinity. And download that app, and you can listen to them when you're out cutting the grass or whatever. That will really equip you. And I mentioned earlier in the broadcast Dave Hunt's book uh, that I think would be helpful to a lot of people, Why This Love. So um, I would just say that. Good. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next question comes from Sue out of Bluffton. She writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. I've been challenged with this verse in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. My belief is that what Paul said is inspired by God and means women then and now. The challenge is that does this apply to women today but to the oppressed women in Paul's day? My discussion included that the Bible was relevant and that we are to take what Paul said as a command from the Holy Spirit's inspired message, that the Bible did not speak just to those in the past, but to all of us throughout time. Furthermore, discussion led to the statement that women today are free. I was then told to work on studying to learn that I was wrong, and that women today can teach men. Further, that Jesus had women disciples and that those disciples taught men. Well, again, that people who teach that are they're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. They are playing to the culture rather than to the Word of God. And we began to see this happen initially in the 1970s and 80s, as group like you know the National Organization of Women had to counter you know all of these um, feminists and so forth and. You know, what was happening? They were saying, look, there's no roles in the marriage. The man is not the head of the home. Uh, they have an equal status in terms of their roles. And listen, there's no other book. 1,400 years before Christ, Moses affirms the equality of men and women, way before people ever thought about this. And so the Bible affirms um, the equality of men and women. With that said, it doesn't affirm their qualities of roles. And so Paul says here, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet. Now this quiet, much like in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says a woman should be silent in the church, you've got to let scripture interpret the scripture, because he was just speaking of in the same breath, basically, about how a woman could prophesy in church. Today, the equivalent would be reading Scripture in church. But again, he's very, very clear. It's a qualified silence, and so he doesn't mean a woman can't sing a song of praise in church. She's commanded to. It doesn't mean she can't pray in church. He's just given instructions as to how she should pray or read Scripture or offer praise or give a testimony at the appropriate time. He's talking about teaching, opening the Scriptures, and teaching over men. It might express itself in an adult Bible fellowship or in the congregation at large when they're gathered. And some would say, well, and this is your friend or who's ever teaching you this gross error, they'll say, well, this is a cultural issue maybe, you know, like foot washing. And 
and we don't really wash feet anymore in our culture because it's not the same thing. No, this is not a cultural issue. That's an impossible position to take. It's not a problem just, say, in the church at Ephesus where uh, Timothy was the pastor. No, he takes it all the way back to the creative order, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And so the chronological order of creation proves that Eve was not intended to direct Adam. God did not create Adam and Eve at the same time. He certainly could have made them both out of the dust of the ground. But he created Adam first. He was Protoss first in rank. And so, again, I think it's interesting. Then he creates Eve out of Adam's side. And interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us of the balancing truth. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And then he uh, underscores in verse 11, however, 1 Corinthians 11, 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And so on the one hand, woman was made out of man, but on the other hand, man is born of a woman. So neither is independent of the other. So when he says here, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he goes back to the creation of the world. And here's the reason for, it's a cause, or you could translate it because, it was Adam whom God first created. So the priority of creation ever before the fall took place was that man had a role as the leader. It's true in the home. It's true in the church. And listen, I wouldn't bring my child to a church that is feminized because you can look at it historically. When roles have been reversed either in the home or in the church, you have created a breeding ground for homosexuality. And when you look at the mainline denominations, one of the first doctrines to go is what God said about the roles of men and women. I don't care if it's United Methodist, PCUSA, uh, the Lutheran Church, all these mainlines. And what did they do next? They adopted homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. And then he goes back to the fall. And it was not Adam, reason number two, who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Uh, he's not like uh, looking down on Eve. Eve was deceived. He's actually ranking on Adam. Adam sinned with his eyes open. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. But his point is, is that when a woman stepped out of her creative order that the man is to lead, she opens herself up to deception. And that's what happens to these churches, churches that jettison the roles of men and women. I'm not saying they're not equal. Men and women are equal, but they have different roles. And when you diminish those roles, you do a great disservice to the body of Christ and to families. And listen, you don't want to be a pastor of a church if you're a woman or travel the country as a woman speaker, you know, teaching over men. Um, if you do so, it will be to the destruction of your own home. And just pull back the veneer of those who've done that, and you're going to find out that's what happened to their children. Anyway, I'm going to address this issue in the weeks ahead before I start the next book of the Bible. I have it on my agenda because it's so very important. I'm going to go through all the verses that people use out of context to say a woman can be a preacher and so on and so forth. So listen up for that message. Well, we're out of time for today. Thank you for joining us for the Bible line. It will be posted later today. And if you ask questions in advance, they will email you to say your question has been answered. Thanks for being with us today. Mm-hmm.